to uh, back when we both served in junior high ministry at Harvest Christian Fellowship, where I'm a pastor. And so it's a blessing to be here. I think you all are blessed to have Robert and the rest of the elders here at this church serving you all. And I'm impressed that they are going away to pray and just think about how they can minister to you as a congregation and serve and seek the Lord together. And so be encouraged that it's easy when you're in the midst of ministry to lose sight of the purpose of ministry. And you can get caught up in all the small things and lose sight of the big things. So it's great that they're going away to rejuvenate, refresh, and look at what all you are doing and and how best to lead you. With that said, let's go ahead and open up to Acts chapter 1, and let's pray together. Oops, I'm falling apart here. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your love, your grace, and your truth. That not only did you send your son to save us, but you sent your spirit to empower empower us for your mission. Lord, help us not to lose sight of that. Help us to be faithful missionaries. Help us to make you supreme in our lives and to share that supremacy with others, to share the good news of your son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. We all pray together and said, amen. Well, it's amazing to me that Christmas is in our rearview mirrors now. It's almost a month ago now. And my wife and I, we have two little ones a six-year-old daughter named Faith, and a four-year-old son, Wesley. And at that age, Christmas just gets more fun every year because they understand Christmas better, and it, let's just be honest, it's fun to watch them open gifts. And because of great-grandma and three sets of grandparents and generous aunts and uncles, our Christmas tree was swarmed with presents this year, almost at an embarrassing total. And Christmas morning came, and it was just so funny. It was like our children literally had ants in their pants. They just couldn't contain themselves. They had so much anticipation about the presents. They couldn't think of anything else. My wife made cinnamon rolls that morning. And cinnamon rolls, I mean, what kid, what adult doesn't like cinnamon rolls? And they couldn't even think about the cinnamon rolls. Their their stomachs were just too much topsy-turvy for them to even think about eating. All they wanted to do was open those presents. And they were like a pack of dogs into a sheep, you know, opening those presents. And it was one after the other, after the other, after the other. And then finally, my son got to the very last present. It was his. And I'm thinking, once he's done with this the next logical step is to go and play with all these toys. Because you're not playing with them. You're opening them up, and then you're going to the next. And instead of doing what I anticipated him to do, which was to say, okay, now I want to play with, these pre- with all these toys, instead, you know what he did? He cried. He didn't just cry. He threw a temper tantrum. I said, Wesley, what's wrong? And he said, I want more. <laughs> And, and, and it's a great glimpse at the idea of this. The actual event, the actual object of our anticipation, rarely, if ever, lives up to and fulfills our anticipation. Isn't that right? I mean, think about it. Whether it's Christmas and the anticipation of the actual day, and the day rarely lives up to all the anticipation, or it's the anticipation of the new car 
the new house, the new clothes, the new phone, whatever it is, rarely does the phone or the house or the car or the clothes or the remodeled kitchen live up to and deliver on what you expected it to deliver. Rarely does that ever happen. But today in our passage in Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 11, the opposite of Wesley's Christmas story comes true. Rather than having expectations left unfilled, we find here in Acts chapter 1, the church's expectations are not only met, but they are exceeded. So they're not only met, but they are exceeded. And I want, what, I want you to, what I want to do with you this morning is to provide you with a summary statement for this passage. And then take some time unpacking that summary statement. So again, I want to summarize our passage and then unpack it. And that statement is this. Cradled in the gospel, we have been given power to be Jesus' witnesses to the ends of the earth with authority from heaven. That is our mission. Now, don't worry, I know that was a mouthful, but I'll repeat it over and over again throughout the message, and we'll, we'll dissect it bit by bit. But again, cradled in the gospel, so imagine yourselves like a little baby, just cradled in your mother, and the mother is the gospel. We have been given power to be Jesus' witnesses to the ends of the earth with authority from heaven. Cradled in the gospel, we have been given power to be Jesus' witnesses to the ends of the earth with authority from heaven. And that is our mission. So let's unpack that. First, number one, we're cradled in the gospel. We see that in verses 1 through 3. Verses 1 through 3 read, in the first book of Theophilus, he's referring to the gospel of Luke, Luke's first book that he wrote, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. If you forgive me, I'm just going to move this music stand because I feel like I'm touching it and I'm going to knock it over and then fall and it'll be very embarrassing. So rather than do that, I'll be embarrassed by stopping and moving that. Okay, so first, number one, we're cradled in the gospel. And, and think about this. The book of Acts is this amazing book. You have the giving of the Holy Spirit, you have Pentecost, you have Paul and Peter going out and extending the gospel to all the ends of the earth. You have miracles being performed. And before Luke gets to any of that, he summarizes the gospel in short. He says in verse 2, Jesus ascended on high. In verse 3, he presented himself alive. That's the resurrection. And then also in verse 3, that he suffered. That's the crucifixion. It's as if Luke is saying this, everything that you're about to read in this book, Theophilus, hinges on this event, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the life, the death, and the resurrection. Without that, there is no power, there is no truth. But with that, there is power and there is truth. And so Luke's reminding us to cradle ourselves in the gospel. What do I mean by that? Sometimes as Christians, we can think that the gospel is something that we share with the non-believer, that we take the gospel, we take that good news, and we share it with the non-believer. And that's true, but that's only part of it. The gospel is something that we preach and re-preach to ourselves every day, that we remind ourselves that we are sinners saved by grace, 
that we have power over death because Jesus exercised that power at the resurrection. We have to preach to ourselves over and over again that we are forgiven of our sins. Dane Ortland writes this. He says, The far-reaching grace of the gospel calms our hearts and nestles us into the freedom of not needing to constantly measure up since Jesus measured up on our behalf. In Christ, he writes, we matter. Clothed in righteousness, we are okay. This sweet calm is the soil in which true godliness flourishes. I forget how little room there is on this pulpit. It's like, honey, I shrunk the kids. They took the pulpit and they shrunk it. And, and I just find, okay, here we go. And so, it's, it, it, so Orland's writing, look, Christian, if we preach the gospel to ourselves, we, we remember our father is not this father in heaven where we constantly have to win his approval. He is this father that we don't have to worry about measuring up to him and gaining his approval because Jesus gained his approval for us on our behalf at the cross and at the resurrection. That we don't have to worry, am I accepted by God today because Jesus secured our acceptance at the cross and at the resurrection. And that is the truth that we have to cradle ourselves in. Because when we cradle ourselves in the gospel, we free ourselves to serve God in ways we never could before because the grandeur of the gospel, the worship leader talked about the glory of God, the glory of the gospel, that compels us, that that motivates us to serve God out of love rather than obligation. And that's completely freeing, isn't it? I don't serve out of obligation. I don't serve God because I have to in order to get something in return. No, Jesus has taken care of all of that. I serve instead out of love because I get to, because there's this God who loves me and accepts me, and that motivates me to love him, and I express that love out of service. So Luke, before he begins his second book, he reminds us of that that cornerstone, that that foundational truth that we need to cradle ourselves in the gospel. It begins there. Like a little baby who nestles herself up to her mother, we need to nestle ourselves up to the gospel. Let me give you two sidebars on verses 1 through 3 before we move to our next main point. Number one, when we read verses 1 through 3, we see that Luke makes clear that the gospel is based on facts, not feelings. The gospel is based on facts, not feelings. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that God doesn't care about your feelings. God's not this God in heaven who, when you're in sorrow and when you're sad, he's not going, suck it up, buttercup. That's not God. And I'm not saying that he doesn't care about your feelings. The gospel tells us, the, the scriptures tell us, the psalmist tells us that God is near to the brokenhearted. That Jesus says, come, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Peter says that you can cast your cares upon God because he cares for you. So what do I mean by saying that the gospel is based on facts, not feelings? Well, look at verse 3. It says, Luke writes, Jesus presented himself alive to them after his suffering by what? By many proofs, by many pieces of evidence. In other words, Luke is saying the gospel, the truth of the gospel is not contingent, it's not dependent upon, it's not hinged upon 
our feelings. It doesn't change based on how we feel because it's based on facts. Let me give you an example. At the church where I pastor at, where I served with Robert in the junior high ministry, we have a radio ministry that's, that's national. And because of that, we get lots of calls from people out of state. And almost on a regular basis, no, on a regular basis, we get calls that sound something like this. Pastor, God doesn't love me. Why do you think God doesn't love you? Because I don't feel his love. Pastor, I don't think God has forgiven me. Why do you think that? Because I don't feel forgiven. Pastor, I don't think God is near to me. He's not, he's not present in my life. Why do you think that? Because I don't feel his presence. Now, I don't say it just like this. It would be a little too straightforward and, and kind of insensitive, but the, the overall message to them in a roundabout way is God, the gospel is not based upon your feelings. It's based upon your, on facts, the facts of the gospel. In other words, whether you feel like God doesn't love you, that doesn't matter. God still loves you, right? Whether you feel like God has not forgiven you, 1 John 1, 9 tells us that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It doesn't say, and if you feel like he has forgiven you, right? So your forgiveness is not based on your feelings. It's based on the truth of the gospel, that he has forgiven you through his son's life, death, and resurrection. Let me give you another way of putting it. Political commentator Ben Shapiro, he has a Prager University video. And, it, it, and the title of it is, The Facts Don't Care About Your Feelings. And he talks about university students who were in an uproar because they felt like they were victims. Now, let me make that clear. They had not been victimized. They had not been robbed or raped or beaten They had not been victims of racism. They simply felt like they were victims. And so Ben Shapiro's point is this. Listen, students, the facts don't care about your feelings. If you feel like a victim, that's not enough. You actually have to be victimized, to be a victim. And so our feelings don't change reality. Because you feel like a victim, that doesn't make you a victim. Let me give you an even clearer example, the Eiffel Tower. It exists. You can feel like the Eiffel Tower does not exist. That does not change the reality that the Eiffel Tower does, in fact, exist. In the same way that your feelings don't change the existence of the Eiffel Tower, your feelings don't change the reality of the gospel. If you are a child of God, if you're a regenerate, if, if, if you have, have believed in the gospel, confessed Jesus as Lord and Savior, then you are forgiven whether you feel like it. You are loved whether you feel loved. God is near to you whether you feel that he's near to you or not. And this is good news because when our feelings deceive us, We can put them in check with the facts, right? We can go to the gospel. We can go to the scriptures and say, feelings, I know you say that God is not near. But the psalmist says God is near to the brokenhearted. I know, feelings, you say that you don't feel forgiven. But 1 John 1, 9 says that I am. You you say that God doesn't love me, 
But John 3.16 says that he does. And so the gospel, thank God, is not based on our feelings because our feelings are fickle, but the facts are not. Sidebar number two. So number one, facts, the, the gospel is not based on our feelings. It's based on facts. Sidebar number two, the gospel is about God's rule and reign, not only not just our personal relationship with him. Now, before you get your rocks out and you throw them at me, let me explain what I mean. Part of the gospel is our personal relationship with Jesus Christ. That's an important part of our, of our relationship with Jesus Christ. What I'm talking about is oftentimes as Christians, we are guilty of reducing the gospel to one thing. And that is our personal relationship with Jesus Christ. We make it into this, it's just about God and me, or Jesus and me, like he's my homeboy or my best friend. And he is our friend. The Bible tells us that. But he is more than just our friend. So that the gospel becomes good news about you and Jesus and nothing else. As if all that matters to the gospel is your relationship with God. And that does matter, but it's not the only thing that matters. Now, you might think, who actually treats the gospel this way? And if they did, what does it matter? Let me give you an example. Lots of people treat it this way. For example, again, we receive phone calls at our church regularly. And I would say 75% or more of those phone calls, those people don't go to our church. And I would say easily over 50% of those phone calls, those people don't go to church at all. They don't belong to a local body of believers in Jesus Christ. And when I ask them about it, and I ask them why, they'll say something like this, that I watch church on the Internet, or I watch church on TV, or I listen to church on the radio, and I read my Bible, and I pray, and that's all God cares about, Pastor. It's about my personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And who are you to tell me that I have to go to church? They often will get mad at me for asking them about their membership at a local church. So do you see how if we reduce the gospel to just our personal relationship with Jesus, the logical conclusion is this. If it's just about me and God, I don't need to go to church. I just pray to God. I read his word. I listen to it on the radio. And that's all I need because it's just my personal relationship with him. So why bother with church if that's all it is? But the kingdom of God, the gospel, is concerned about much more than that. Notice in verse 3, Luke tells us that Jesus spent time teaching about what? The kingdom of God. And notice in verse 6, what the disciples are most presently and urgently concerned about is the kingdom of God, the timing of it. And if you read the gospels, what you'll notice is that Jesus explains the gospel most frequently in kingdom of God terms. In the four gospels, the kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven is mentioned 126 times. Do you know how many times your personal relationship is mentioned? Zero. Now again, don't get your stones out. I'm not saying that your personal relationship with Jesus is not important or even vital to the gospel. I'm just saying that Jesus explains the gospel in broader terms than that, that it's actually deeper and wider and, and, and richer than just that. There's so much more to it. Let me explain. 
First, what is the kingdom of God? It's God's righteous rule and reign. It's God's righteous rule and reign. Now, while God's kingdom is his righteous rule and reign, there's also the realm of God's kingdom. Where does God's righteous rule and reign touch? Where does it reside? Think of like a kingdom, right? It has boundaries or borders, and that's where that's king, that king's righteous rule and reign exists, and it doesn't go beyond those borders. That's the realm of his reign. That's the realm of his rule. That's the realm of his kingdom. So what is the realm of God's kingdom? Well, there's two aspects to it to make it really simple. There's an outward aspect and an inward aspect to God's kingdom. What do I mean by inward? Well, did you know this, Christian? That the kingdom of God is in your heart. The kingdom of God is inside you. The Pharisees, in Luke 17, verse 21, they're in a conversation with Jesus, and he tells them, he says, Pharisees, the kingdom of God is actually in your midst right now. And they're looking around like, where? I don't see it. They're, they're thinking more of a physical kingdom, right? What did Jesus mean that the gospel is, the kingdom of God was in their midst? Well, supremely through Jesus. He's saying, I am the expression of God's kingdom, but also in the midst of the Pharisees were people who had been transformed by the gospel. That God's rule and reign was in their hearts, right? Ezekiel 36 talks about a time where God will take our hearts of stone and make them what? Hearts of flesh, where God's rule and reign can reside in our hearts. So there's this inward aspect to the kingdom of God. So that when God's rule and reign is in our hearts, he gives us new affections with a new disposition toward God and all that God desires for his creation. Anthony Bradley puts it like this, speaking about the kingdom of God. Love for God is a life oriented around an uncompromising commitment to love the things God loves. Properly loving one's neighbor predisposes one to a commitment to seeking the good of the other. So that when the kingdom of God is in our hearts, it just changes our affections, that we are predisposed to loving our neighbor and seeking the good of our neighbor over our own good. That's what love is, to give yourself up for the sake of the other. That's what Jesus did, didn't he? He gave himself up on the cross for all of us. He sacrificed himself. It's like this. If the realm of God's kingdom is in your heart individually, personal relationship with Jesus, then the kingdom of God will take a corporate community shape outwardly in your life. What do I mean by that? Well, the kingdom of God inside you will affect the world outside of you. How so? You will live differently. And so now the kingdom of God is expressed outwardly, expressed outwardly, so that if we're really Christians, God's going to give us this love for other Christians. We're going to desire to be around, Hebrews 10.24, the assembly of the saints. Because when we are in the assembly of saints, what happens? You stir one another up to love and good works. In the words of Tim Keller, he writes about this outward aspect of the kingdom. He says, The kingdom of God is a new order of things in which money is not made an idol, Mark 10, 
and the hungry, naked, and homeless are cared for. Matthew 25. You see, so if the kingdom of God is in your heart, then you're going to have something new to worship, and that's God. If the kingdom of God is in your heart, it's going to be expressed in caring for the poor, caring for the hungry, caring for the homeless. In other words, if the kingdom of God is truly inside you, then God will give you a desire to fellowship with his people so that you're going to have no other choice from these new affections than to fellowship with one another. Now, some people might say, well, what about shut-ins, pastor? What about those in convalescent homes? They, they can't come to church. Are you saying because they don't come to church, they're not Christians? No, not at all. I'm saying in those situations, God calls the church to come to them. That they should still be in fellowship with God's people because the church is going to have an affection for those people to care for them and go into those homes, into those hospitals, into where they're shut in and bring church to them. And then, by the way, the most obvious expression of the outward form of the kingdom of God is heaven, right? Where we can actually see the kingdom of God physically before us. So there's an outward and an inward aspect to the kingdom of God. Let's move on to point number two. I think I spent too much time there. So let's review our phrase. Number one, cradled in the gospel. So we cradle ourselves in the gospel, the truth that we're forgiven and accepted by God because of Jesus. That 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 truth is based on facts, not feelings. And it's bigger than just us. It's all of us, the kingdom of God. Point number two, we have been given power. We read that in verses 4 through 5. Verses 4 through 5 of Acts chapter 1 says, And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Now, I don't know about you, but as, as a Christian on this side of the resurrection... When I read verses like, I will pour my spirit upon your offspring, I immediately think of the personal, permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit, right? As Christians, we have this wonderful gift. The Holy Spirit lives inside of us. That's an amazing thing. But understand, those first disciples in in Acts chapter 1 with Jesus, they wouldn't have necessarily thought of this. They would have thought something more um, political and more corporate. Usually when they thought of the Holy Spirit coming down, it was more of God blessing Israel as a nation. That they would have freedom over their enemies and conquer their enemies. And that's what the disciples are thinking. That's why we re- when we read on in verse 6, they're like, when's the kingdom going to be here, Lord? When are you going to conquer our enemies? But see, this is the amazing thing about God's promises. Is that while Israel expected one thing, God's Spirit coming down upon them and God achieving political victory over their enemies. God will eventually do that. But he says, my pouring out of the Holy Spirit is going to be that and much, much more. I'm going to meet your expectations. So think of Wesley, my son, on Christmas Day. I'm going to meet all the expectations that you had so that at the end you're not crying wanting more. But that's because I'm going to give you more than you ever, ever expected. One, uh, one Bible teacher says this, In fulfilling Old Testament promises, Christ turns them into new promises of even larger scope. So every time Jesus fulfills an Old Testament promise or prophecy even, 
he turns it into a new promise that becomes bigger in scope. And he, he fulfills all of that. Isn't that amazing? God doesn't just keep his promises. When he keeps them, he fulfills them in bigger and better ways than we could have ever imagined him fulfilling them. Brothers and sisters, when we believed in Jesus, we received power. Not power like Samson and Elijah that came upon them and then eventually left. We received something greater. It's the permanent, personal, indwelling of the Holy Spirit. God's Spirit resides in us. And what does He do inside of us? He convicts us of sin. He convinces us of unrighteous, or he convinces us of righteousness, he convicts us of unrighteousness, and he empowers us to do his will. But he's given us that power for a specific purpose, and that's our third point. Point three, so let's review our phrase, cradled in the gospel, point one. Point two, we have been given power, that's the Holy Spirit. And point three, We are to be Jesus' witnesses to the ends of the earth. We see that in verses 6 through 8. So when they had come together, the disciples, they had asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So again, the disciple says, when, when, they say, when is this going to happen, they ask. And he says, that's none of your business, basically. Don't worry about that. Here's what I want you to worry about. I want you to worry about the scope of my mission. How far is the realm of my mission to go? That's what I want you to be concerned about. And he says, you will be my witnesses in where? Jerusalem, Judea. Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. As far as you can go, that's how far I want you to take the good news of Jesus Christ. To whom? Not just to Jews, not just to Samaritans, but even to the Gentiles. I want you to go with this mission to all places, to all kinds of peoples. It has no limitation. That's how far I want you to go. Now, I want you to understand something. And this is good news. This is not a new mission that Jesus gives. When we read of the the Great Commission here in Acts 1-8 and in Matthew 28, 19 and 20, that's not a new mission, a moo mission. It's not a cow mission. It's a new mission. It's a new mission. It's not a new mission. I don't know what I'm saying anymore. I give up. It's not a new mission. It is an old mission. How old? It is ancient old. How ancient? The beginning of the universe old. That's how old. Look at with me at Genesis 1, 27 and 28. The mission that Jesus gives to the disciples in Acts 1, 8 is the exact same mission he gives to Adam and Eve in Genesis 1, 27 and 1, 28. Look, it says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now, you might be saying, that doesn't sound like 
be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. But if you think about it, it is precisely the same exact mission, just using different words. Look at the similarities. In verse 127 of Genesis, he says that we are his what? His image bearers, right? We are to bear his image. We are to reflect in our lives who God is. What does Jesus tell us to be in Acts 1.8? His witnesses. What is a witness? It's someone who bears witness about someone or something else. We are to reflect as God's witnesses. We are to be his representatives. We are to represent in our lives and with our lips who Jesus is. So in 127, God uses image bearers, and in 1.8, God uses witnesses. But they're essentially the same thing. And then look, Genesis 1.28, God tells Adam and Eve to fill the earth and subdue it, to rule over it. To rule over it with what? With God's rule, right? Okay, well then look at 1.8. Jesus says to go into Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Are we just supposed to go out there and visit those places? No, of course not. What are we supposed to do when we go from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth? We're to take the gospel to those places, and when the gospel takes root there, what does it do? It takes root in the human heart, and it rules over the human heart. God's rule and reign resides there. So just as Adam and Eve were to be image bearers and rule over all the earth, we today in Acts 1.8 are told by Jesus to be his witnesses, his image bearers, and to go to the ends of the earth and rule over it with the gospel. It's the same mission. It's the same mission given over and over again. You can read about it in, in Genesis 12 when God gives it to Abraham to be a blessing to all the families of the earth. Over and over again, it's given to uh, Abraham, to Moses, to David, to Israel, to be a light to the nations, he tells Israel, to rule over them. See, so the disciples, they were familiar with this mission, but they misunderstood the mission. They wanted to subdue and rule over the nations by disciplining them with military power. They wanted to discipline the, the nations. But what Jesus wanted them to do here in Acts 1.8 is to subdue the nations by discipling them. Rather than discipline the nations, Jesus wants the disciples to go out and disciple the nations, to rule their hearts with the kingdom of God, not conquer them physically. To put it another way, the disciples wanted to defeat the nations. Jesus wanted them to wash the feet of the nations. So they, they knew the mission, but they just misunderstood its scope and the spirituality of it. It wasn't just to rule physically, it was to rule spiritually. And we Christians can do a very similar thing. We can misunderstand the mission. You would think, we have the whole Old and New Testament. We have the complete Word of God. How can we get this wrong? I don't know, because we're sinners. We can think the Great Commission is about building big churches, about building the church up rather than out to the ends of the earth. We can think it's about big events at the church. We Americans, we like everything big, don't we? We like big churches and big events. Or we can think that the mission of God is about digging wells in Africa. 
Are digging wells in Africa a good, is digging wells there a good thing? Of course. But is that the Great Commission? No. It's more than that. It's about bringing the gospel. We can think it's about feeding the poor. Can it include feeding the poor? Yes, we should care for the poor. But it's about the gospel. Is it about creating the religious right in the political sphere? Probably not. We've seen, as the religious right has gotten stronger and richer, Christianity has gotten poorer and poorer spiritually in America. It's amazing to think about it, but we can actually forget about the Great Commission and about representing Jesus and about speaking on his behalf and taking the gospel to everyone everywhere. We're to take the gospel to all places, to all people. We, we, we can forget that the, the Great Commission is about planting churches, creating a base for the mission, and then sending out missionaries. That the farther out we plant churches, the farther out missionaries can go, and the farther out we can reach the gospel, or reach people with the gospel. Did you know that there are large numbers of people living today that have never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ? Never heard. What if I told you there is 500 million people that have never heard the gospel? Would you believe me? How many people would believe me? Okay. What if I told you there's 1 billion people that have never heard the gospel? 1 billion people. Would you believe me? What if I told you there's 4 billion people that have never heard the gospel living today? That would be a lie. Because there's 4.95 billion people living today that have not heard the gospel. It's the 1040 window. Is that not amazing? I think there's 6 or 7 billion people on the earth. So more people have not heard the gospel than who have. Brothers and sisters, how good of a job are we, the church in America, doing if more people living today have not heard the gospel than have? Not very good, huh? We need to do a better job of planting churches, of sending missionaries. Instead of building our churches up, bigger and bigger and bigger, we need to build them out. That when we get to a certain number, you plant another church, and then that church plants another church until the church reaches the ends of the earth with the gospel. Because 4.95 billion people in the 1040 window is what it's called. That certain... uh, area on the earth, those people have never heard the gospel. Okay, so I've kind of made you feel guilty, huh? I've kind of torn you down. It's like remodeling. Before you can remodel your house, you've got to tear things down before you can build them back up, right? You've got to tear everything out of your kitchen before you can remodel. So I'm, I'm going to tear you down, and then I'm going to build you back up. I want to I give you some encouragement to the mission. Encouragement number one It's important to know that you're a part of an ancient mission. I already talked about that. Why is that important? Because it's so old, we can see over thousands of years, God has never strayed from it. God is committed to it. He's not going to go, oh, you know what? I found a new shiny mission that I like better. I'm going to do that one. It's not like people with leasing cars. They lease a car for a year, and then they see the new model, and they get it. God isn't leasing out a mission. He is committed to it from day one. From the creation of the heavens and the earth, this has been his mission. So you don't have to worry about God leaving you in the lurches. He is committed to it. Encouragement number two, 
While this is not a new mission, it's old, it's ancient, it is a renewed mission. Renewed in the sense that God has given his spirit to us to be his witnesses. We have a major advantage over Abraham and David in fulfilling this mission. How so? Two ways. Our first advantage is we don't fight for victory. We fight from victory. Victory was already won at the cross and the resurrection. So we don't have to scramble for victory and fight hard. We already have victory. So we're fighting from it, and that gives us more confidence. Advantage number two, Jesus fulfills the mission for us. Now, don't take that too literally. I'm not saying you can sit on the couch and not go anywhere or do anything because Jesus is going to do it. But he fulfills it for us in the sense that his spirit now lives inside of us, empowering and enabling and convincing us to do it. Think of it. Jesus himself said that John the Baptist was the greatest prophet ever to live. He said this in, in Luke seven twenty eight. But he says the one who is least in the kingdom is greater than John the Baptist. Why? Tim Keller puts it like this. He says, there's got to be the least in the kingdom, right? So there's, there's got to be the, the stupidest, weakest, worst Christian living today. There just has to be, right? The, okay? It, it seems kind of funny or sad, depending on your sense of humor, right? Um, and, 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 and Keller puts it this way. That stupidest, weakest, least spiritual Christian right now, if truly a Christian, is greater than John the Baptist. The least in the kingdom is greater than the greatest prophet ever to have lived. Why is that? Because we have the completion of the gospel and the Holy Spirit living in our lives. So you might go, Pastor, you don't understand. I'm, I'm not a pastor. I'm not an elder. I'm not a leader. I'm just, I'm just a newbie Christian. And the gospel says, great, you're better than the greatest prophet to have ever lived. Oh, <laughs> that's pretty good then. Maybe I can do this mission. Yes, because you have the Spirit of God living in you and you have the fulfillment of the gospel through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Encouragement number three, in a world striving for purpose, you have purpose. You don't have to go, what am I supposed to do with my life? Where am I supposed to be? What am I supposed to do? You have a mission, don't you? Now, we all play a different part in that mission. Some people are goers. They go somewhere. They go to Africa or or Asia, or something like that. Others are stayers, payers, and prayers. We stay, we pray, and we pay for the other people to go. But whether you're a stayer, payer, or prayer, or a goer, you're all part of the mission. Some of us stay back at home base, and some of us go out on the mission. But we're all part of the mission, and we have an amazing purpose in a world that is starving and hungry for purpose. We don't have to hunger because we have been given it. All right, point number four, and then we'll close. Cradled in the gospel, number one, we have been given power, number two. Number three, to be Jesus' witness on earth. And number four, with authority from heaven, and that is our mission. That's a powerful one-two punch. We've been given power on earth and authority from heaven. Think about it. You could be the strongest man on earth. But if you don't have the authority to go and use it, then you're basically weak. We have power 
and we have authority. Power on earth, authority from heaven. Let's look at that in verses 9 through 11. And when he had said these things, when Jesus had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. The disciples are freaking out. Lord, it's about your kingdom. Your kingdom is going to rule and reign, and here's its realm. And then they look up, and he's gone. And they're thinking, how can we do this without you? And then these angels kind of show up, and they they kind of lovingly and lightly admonish the disciples. What are you doing looking up there? He's going to come back. Look forward. Look at the mission that he has just given you. Understand, what, what they're hinting at is, understand that Jesus going into heaven was the greatest thing that could have ever happened to them. They thought Jesus leaving was the worst, and the angels are reminding them that Jesus leaving them was the best. Why? Look at this. Jesus was born the Messiah, right? He lived the life of the Messiah, right? He died the death of the Messiah, and he rose from the dead, the Messiah. But something specific and special happened at the resurrection and the ascension that is important, that is vital for our Christian lives. At the resurrection and the ascension, Jesus was inaugurated and coronated the Messiah. That means his Messiahship, if that's a word, is complete and final and authoritative. Him going up into heaven means he seats, he sits at the right hand of God. That's my alarm telling me, telling me I need to finish soon. He sits at the right hand of God. The right hand of God is the ultimate seat of authority. It's the papa chair. Some of you men have like your recliner in your homes, right? And only you get to, oh, you can't sit there, that's dad's chair. This is the papa chair. It's where the, the head of the household sits. And that's where Jesus sits. Understand, by him sitting at the right hand of God, a gospel bomb is detonated. A gospel bomb is detonated. That couldn't have been detonated without him sitting there. And this gospel bomb gives us power and authority to reach the nations with the gospel. It kickstarts the mission into high speed and into high power. Let me give you an example. Hebrews 7, 23 through 28. Without the ascension, this is not possible. It says, The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But Jesus holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save the uttermost, those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people. Since he did this, how many times? Once and for all he offered himself up. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests. 
but the word of oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Because of the ascension, we have this permanent, perfect high priest who continues forever, who lacks nothing and needs no one. And he makes intercession for us continually. Isn't that amazing? That you may feel alone. You may feel that you have no friends. You could be like that. I never saw the movie, but I think it was 126 hours, the guy that gets stuck under the rock, and no one knows where he is. And he's thinking, who's here for me? Jesus is. If no one is praying for you, Jesus always is. And that can't happen without the ascension. We have power on earth through his spirit, and we have authority from heaven because of his exaltation to the right hand of God. That means we sit in a very good place to fill and fulfill an amazing mission. We have authority from heaven. And isn't that what Jesus says in Matthew 28, 19, and 20? Go into all the world. All authority, he says. All authority has been given to me. So now go. You don't have to worry. You have a passport to wherever you need to go with the gospel. Church, we may go, but we can't go into China. It's a communist nation. And God's saying, no, you have all authority from me, from heaven, and you have all power. That's your passport. You're going to get there. But God, it seems impossible. No, 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 you don't understand. When I was seated at the right hand of God, a gospel bomb was detonated. And it conquers all evil. You can go to anyone, anywhere with the gospel, and I have given you a passport. You may lose your life individually doing it. I'm not here to lie to you. You could die doing it. But the church will succeed. The church will take the mission forward. It will never fail. It can't. We have power on earth and authority from heaven. The Great Commission is guaranteed to succeed and guaranteed to have eternal value. Why? Because the risen Lord, who has all authority and all power to transform the human heart from sickness to life, is risen and is seated at the right hand of God. He has shared that power and he has shared that authority with us to do one thing. There's many things that you can try to do and might fail. There's one thing that you're guaranteed to be a part of and be successful in. And that's the Great Commission. Isn't that amazing? So, we'll do it because we are cradled in the gospel, because we have been given power to be Jesus' witnesses to the ends of the earth, and because we have authority from heaven. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you have sent your Son, that you have revealed yourself most supremely in the person and work of Jesus Christ. But not only that, God, you saved us from our sins, and not only that, but you gave us your Spirit so that we can serve you and serve others. Lord, whether we are goers or payers, prayers, and stayers, help us to be faithful to fulfill your mission, to make it our aim, our desire, our affection, to share the gospel with as many who will listen and to take it everywhere that we can. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.